0: Thank you very much. I'm very honored to be here with you and I will try usually make this mistake not to talk too fast and I will keep to 35 minutes as I was ordered maybe a minute or two more and when I say I like to be with you and so on and so on these are not the usual empty phrases how people begin talks politely. I mean it very seriously. Why? Because as gentlemen who introduced me already pointed out, the fate of the Kurds makes them the exemplary victim of today's geopolitical gains spread along the borderline of four neighboring states, Turkey, Syria, Iraq, Iran. Their full autonomy is in nobody's interest. But the true miracle resides somewhere else. In the ability of the Kurds to organize their communal life. This ability was tested in an almost experimental way. The moment you Kurds were given a space to breathe freely, a little bit freely, outside the conflicts of the states around you, you surprised the world. You quickly built a society that one cannot but designate as an actually existing utopia with thriving intellectual uh, community. So you are more than a symbol of resistance. You are a symbol of how not only to resist, but then to install, experiment with, build a new order. This is what is needed today. We get again and again the same boring picture Remember, in Istanbul, in uh, uh, Athens, in ba- in Madrid, blah blah. You get big demonstrations. One million people uh, cry, shout together, and then, and then the enthusiasm is lost, and more or less nothing remains. You remember what happened in Egypt? Almost one million people in Cairo on the main square, then you got your freedom, free elections, and you get Muslim Brotherhood. And <laughs> you you are glad that the uh, almost that the army makes coup d'etat. What you try to do is it's not me giving you a historical talk. I am addressing you as one of the few examples in the world how you have you've demonstrated, proven, that this is my formula, that uh, that uh, a new order can be built. People want this new order. Let me give you a simple example. We all watched it, probably, on the screens. You remember the inauguration of uh, new president, Joe Biden. This was, I think, for me, a pretty disgusting ideological event. All happy together, we got rid of Donald Trump, things will return to normality. But then, you know who was the star of the event? A lone old man (laughs) sitting there, and everybody talked about him. Bernie Sanders, of course. The fact that millions talked about him, I don't want to talk about Sanders, but about the importance of the fact that he attracted all the attentions. Millions uh, downloaded those images and so on, meant that it's not just a couple of us crazy radical leftists, but millions of ordinary people felt that, that there was something wrong in that big spectacle of inauguration, the old order is back. Know that a new order is needed. Just with his presence, presence there, sitting alone, as if he wanted to say, sorry guys, I'm not part of that show. He give, gave body to an alternative. People want. People want this. And you, Kurds, you belong to this line. So uh, this brings me to my topic. What's the fate in all of this of democracy? What kind of democratization can help not only Kurds, but all of us? It's... Certainly not just the expansion of the standard Western multi-party democracy. Attention, which is imminent to the very idea of parliamentary democracy, is gaining visibility today. Democracy means two things. The power of the people, in the sense that the substantial will of the majority should express itself and the trust in electoral mechanism. Democracy means, yes, there may be manipulations and so on, but once the votes are counted, all sides accept the, the result. Of course, We leftists, and even some rightists, claim this parliamentary mechanism is not neutral. And this is true, Uh, because not this is the crazy thing today. It's no longer that less developed countries, so-called third world countries,
1: are the countries where
0: democracy doesn't function and then we look to the West. No. The standard democracy, multi-party representative democracy, is in crisis in the so-called developed West itself. If you follow a little bit the news, you may have noticed some very strange phenomena. Like in 2005, 17 years ago, I was in United Kingdom, and the Labour Party with Tony Blair won the election. But two weeks before the election, there was a big opinion poll who is the most hated person in the United Kingdom. The same person, Tony Blair. And this is a very tragic phenomenon which should worry us. We have a certain dissatisfaction, protest, which somehow escapes the regular voting mechanism of multi party democracy. You have a dissatisfaction which cannot be expressed through the regular parliamentary democratic uh, channels. There is another example of this. Do you remember in France, I think it was some three years ago or when uh, this protests of so-called yellow West, Wests. It's not protests of people who are deprived of democracy. It's a much more mysterious protest. It is, it's a protest of people who are dissatisfied precisely by parliamentary democracy with all its freedoms and so on and so on. And uh, what was so tragic was that, okay, then, Macron, president, the government, tried to play a polite role. He said, Okay, come to me, we will debate. And it was a terrible experience. They talked different languages in some sense. They it became clear that we have here a gap, that what people who were protesting demanded simply, in some sense, couldn't be translated into the usual language of parliamentary uh, parliamentary manipulations and so on, and so on. It was, if you remember it, the same in Spain, some 10, even more, I think, years ago, it was the same popular explosion with uh, Podemos, the movement. Hundreds of thousands of people on the streets and so on. And then what happened then? Then finally Podemos constituted itself as a party and now it's part of a government. It's just an ordinary, let's call it social democratic political party, no big difference from socialists. Where did that energy uh, where did that energy go? What is the problem here? The crisis of liberal democracy lasts for decades. The COVID epidemic only made it explode beyond a certain level. The basic premise of a functioning democracy is today more and more undermined. Namely, the trust on which democracy relies. This was best expressed by Abraham Lincoln's famous saying, you can fool all the people some of the time and some of the people you can fool all the time, but you cannot fool all the people all the time. But I think the latest experiences tell us that things are even a little bit darker, like you can fool most of the people most of the time, definitely. It's in very rare moments that collectively people can live in truth. And I will return to this later. Another thing you must abandon here is the too simple paranoia theory that there are evil manipulators who manipulate who make the people blind. No manipulators who fool the people are always themselves fool. For example, in the United States, you shouldn't think that Donald Trump knew exactly what was going on and lied to the people. No, he was also definitely lying to himself. So, here comes my uh, <laughs> sorry, my Pessimist if you want, pessimistic uh, uh, insight. What really did strike me is that leftists advocate all the time some kind of immediate direct democracy where the people is given pe- people are given voice directly. But what shocked me is that I remember from Donald Trump's inauguration speech in 2017, how he used the same term. Let me remind you, I quote Donald Trump. Today's ceremony has a very special meaning because today we are not only transferring power from one administration to another, from one party to another, But we are transferring power from Washington, D.C., and we are giving it back to you, the people. Uh, Till now, elites were ruling, but this all changes now. Starting right here and now, because this moment is your moment. It belongs to you. It belongs to everyone gathered here today and everyone watching all across America, this is your day. So isn't a paradox that Donald Trump, in his populism, uses the terminology, which is usually the terminology of the radical leftist critics. And let me go even to the end here. We all watched uh, uh, in the beginning of January of this year, how? The mob, the crowd of Trump protesters, invaded, broke into the Capitol. And what made me sad is the the reaction of my leftist friends, who said, this is a wonderful, wonderful thing happening. People directly breaking into the seat of power, trying to take over. Just it's that they are not the right people. We should be doing this, not they. I don't. uh, I don't accept this. I think that with a few big courageous exceptions, like Eucerts, maybe some others up to a point in Bolivia, and so on. Today, these people, the people into whom democracy tells us to trust. This people is more and more divided, no longer exists. Now I will do, uh, I think, uh, something strange. It may sound totalitarian, but it's meant in a radically democratic way. I think that we are all so caught in our divisions the whole world is today in some kind of a ideological civil war that uh, the people the task of a revolution is not only to represent adequately people but in the same way to make people if you want to construct the people to make people aware of what aware sorry of what they want People don't simply know, I want this. And then you go into politics, like on the market, oh, this politician is telling me what I want, that other is telling even better, I will vote for him, and so on and so on. No, people need leaders or at least a leading organization. Uh, Because I will now do something very strange. I will quote, you know, the old car maker from United States who invented serially produced car making, Henry Ford. He said that uh, he didn't follow what people wanted. He said that if he were to ask people what do you want, people would have answered I want a better and stronger horse to pull our carriage. And he didn't give them a better, stronger horse. He gave them cars. And something like this is happening today. We shouldn't just ask for a better horse, for better functioning of what is here. We should ask for something that was more than 100 years ago like a horse. We should want we should demand or try to invent through leaders a better help and to avoid the misunderstanding. A leader for me is not the one who tells you what you want, who gives you orders and so on. Uh, uh, a true, you know, don't mystify the people. They are confused today. They are all caught in ideology in their egotist problems, dreams. Ideology is, we can talk about more about this later, I just want to tell you now that ideology is not some abstract system of values and so on. Ideology is inscribed into your everyday experiences. Like, for me, the best example of ideology is everyday racism. It's usually not even put in ideological terms. When you walk in the street and see a foreigner from some so-called third world country, and you are disturbed by him or her, you tell, say yourself, okay, I am not a racist, but I don't want to be too close to him, and so on, and so on. That's everyday life ideology. How we eat, how we marry, how we make love, and so on. All this is ideology, and the message of a good leader is not, no, I know better than you what you want, but it's, I give you hope. It's like Bernie Sanders just sitting there. I give you hope you can move beyond this out of this. And another thing for what I think a good leader is needed is to make tough decisions, because... As much as I like these emphatic moments of popular unity, half a million of people demonstrating and so on, I more and more think that the system can and was always able, the system of power, to accommodate with these outbursts. You wait a little bit in the shadows, then the enthusiasm fades away and you things return to the old order. No. Uh, The problem is to translate this popular discontent into a new form of political organization. You have to make tough decisions in this sense, only in this sense, because this is a very dangerous metaphor. In this sense, uh, politics is like uh, medicine, healthcare. You have to make tough decisions, or military command. You have to say, "Sorry, now we have to to risk that thousands will die in that unit, or we cannot take care of all the patients. Some will die. Who will die? And so on. These are horrible decisions. The best definition of leader, because I am an ordinary low guy. I also watch ordinary TV series. I warn you. I watched that American uh, medical doctor series, New Amsterdam, where uh, an administrator tells an old doctor, leaders make choices that keep them awake at night. If you sleep well, you are not one of them. You are not a leader. This is, for me, a good uh, leader. So it's not simply direct people's democracy, You need inspirational figures. We need force to organize it because, again, it's not just political alienation and so on. It's also the other side which is in crisis today. We no longer can simply say the people, which people, people are divided uh, and so on. What do they mean by this? For Marxists, people usually meant working class. But did you notice how, if you know a little bit of history, how in every epoch, a specific group of workers functioned as a symbol of they are the true proletarians. For example, 100 years ago in Europe, it was usually... Miners or steel workers who were like the real working class? Uh, Who is this today? There are many candidates and we have to accept this plurality. There are, of course, workers, exploited workers, especially in the third world. Then there are in the third world, those who are not exploited in the usual sense, being hired, State uh, wage and the capitalist or the state gives the profit. But they are exploited in the sense that the cycle of capitalist production ruins their conditions of existence. For example, I read in the north of Canada, they are now doing producing oil through that process, fracking and so on. And they are doing it, a lot of it, in the land where only few whatever you call them, Native Americans, uh, the first people leave. They are not exploited directly. They even get some state support. But their condition, because the land that is left after fracking is done is a uh, destroyed land, with uh, polluted with chemicals and so on and so on. So they are definitely also exploited. Then we have students with no chance of employment, we have precarious workers living in great uncertainty. We have uh, women who are doing work which is not caught in the capitalist process of valoriz- valorization. They are doing unpaid work. And as intelligent analysis have shown, without this unpaid work of women and other Uh, family members, the ordinary capitalist exploitation cannot work. We, all these other forms have to be here. If today, that was the big lesson of my good friend, the uh, uh, ex-Bolivian vice president, Alvaro Garcia Linera, that uh, in these conditions, it's madness to focus on the old working class. In many countries, working class is a little bit privileged with regard to unemployed women and so on. They can uh, they can do things that those truly exploited cannot even dream of doing. Like maybe this can interest you. In my country, Slovenia, I must admit, I often oppose workers' strikes. Why? Not because I'm, I don't agree with the idea of workers' striking, but because I learned that in Slovenia, only those privileged workers, those in, with a firm job uh, employed by the state, doctors, policemen, judges, professors, they can afford to strike. Ordinary workers in small companies cannot afford to strike. So, paradoxically, being a classical proletarian with a stable job is almost already uh, a privilege today. And I think that this leftist dream that somehow we should all come together, women, students, workers, immigrants, and so on, is very difficult to achieve. My friend, Alain Badiou, whom you, and I think, already kindly mentioned, he is uh, even a pessimist here. I would not go as far as he does, but he even thinks that in Western Europe, in the United States, workers are already, as a group, part of what Lenin called workers' aristocracy. Privileged, totally corrupted, we cannot count on them. Then, you proposes as an ersatz, another uh, emancipatory agent, uh, what he calls nomadic pro- proletarians, those, the homeless people who emigrate to Europe, and so on and so on. But even there, I think, things are not so simple, because I read a very good analysis Who comes to Europe as an emigrant? Mostly, it's not the truly desperate from those countries, like, uh, I don't know, Iraq, uh, Afghanistan, and so on. Those who come are, okay, there are also children, women, but most of them are very able young people, even with some financial stability, because, you know, to come from Afghanistan to Europe, you need... Thousands of dollars to do the, to bribe all the customers and so on and so on. So uh, I think that, and that's the sad strength of today's global capitalism. It's almost impossible to build a united front against him. What does this mean for democracy? I will now quote from somebody with whom I absolutely don't agree. But here he made a good point. The best-share author, Yuval Harari. He wrote that, I quote, People feel bound by democratic elections only when they share a basic bond with most other voters. If the experience of other voters is alien to me, and if I believe they don't understand my feelings and don't care about my vital interests, Then even if I am outvoted by a hundred to one, I have absolutely no reason to accept the verdict. End of quote. So uh, this, I think, is happening today. I think this is maybe the root, one of the roots of the crisis of liberal democracy. People like to say uh, democracy implies differences and so on. Yes, but differences against the background of a basic pact, like with you, the the Kurds. You cannot say the solution is big democratic elections in all of Syria and Turkey. Yes, it would be nice, but I, I can well imagine. I don't know, this is pure hypothesis in Turkey. Erdogan uh, uh, mobilizing the crowd against you and presenting you as intruders and so on and so on. Again, elections work when a certain solidarity is already here. We may oppose each other, but we accept basic rules. Uh, And uh, this is i think what is happening with the crisis of democracy today in united states we have now an almost almost a war an ideological civil war we have half of the people maybe a little bit more who still remain liberal democrats with all the limitations and then we have almost half of the people Trump followers populists and what is so interesting is that how this opposition and they don't speak the same language the the country is falling apart the crisis in the united states you cannot resolve it by simple big democratic elections you get you get you get two countries the situation is totally mystified because Trump populists manipulated by many billionaires nonetheless act as representatives of the people while uh, uh, Democrats who also want to represent minorities and so on and so on also often play a very very strange game with ordinary people and so on and so on. But uh, what I want to emphasize is this. I think that Liberal democracy, which presupposes something that I'm tempted to call a basic social pact. By this, I mean something very specific. As my favorite philosopher, Hegel, the German idealist, pointed out, what keeps a society together, really, and incidentally, if I will ever be lucky to visit your part of the world, this is what would have interested me. You know, people say there are rules. Yes, there are rules that keep every society together. But then not all rules are explicit. There are rules that are not explicitly stated. There are unwritten rules, customs, and so on. And that is today falling apart. This is, I think, the crisis of COVID that was triggered by the pandemic. You know, we had our everyday lives. You walk around, meet friends, socialize, and so on and so on. These everyday customs are threatened. And then Authorities are, of course, uh, uh, giving orders, keep distance, and so on and so on. But we are somehow deprived of this substance of our lives, Uh, ethical substance, the unwritten rules, not the explicit written rules. Because, you know, again, it's not enough to know the rules. You have also to know which rules you are allowed secretly to disobey For example, a comical example. When I was young, it was the official morality was don't have sex when you are not married, conservative. But then everybody expected you to engage in sexual life. You know, you were considered very weird if you didn't broke the explicit rules. Or the opposite paradox, my favor. You are solicited, you are given a certain freedom on condition that you don't use that freedom, you know? This, so society is a very complex example, and I think that uh, Trump played a certain positive role in the sense that he ruined this ideological hegemony, the order of unwritten rules, and not only Trump did this in United States, This is happening all around the world, in Germany, in England, and so on, and so on. But, uh, and so again, for example, United States, I don't see a solution. What should you do? People claim we should step all together. We are one nation. No, in some sense, they are not one nation. They have less and less of ideological uh, common ground. But here, I'm ready to go even a step further. We cannot simply say, yes, Trump is bad, so we should get rid of Trump. Joe Biden and liberal Democrats should win. No, we should never forget that Trump is what in psychiatry we call a symptom, a sign of something that was wrong in liberal democracy itself. Trump didn't fall uh, from the moon. Now, let me, so that I will not talk too long, just a couple of pages. Let me make a step further here. And this is maybe the saddest thing of what is going on today. And I'm sure from what I've learned that in your part of the world, things are more civilized. In spite of all the horrible suffering that you have there, we Europeans and Americans are, I'm afraid, the true barbarians today. Namely, the ethical catastrophe of Trump and new right-wing populists is this uh, incredible degradation of public social life. You are able to make dirty jokes, to say obscenities, decency is disappearing. And here, something very strange is happening today. I hope some of you know a wonderful book by Angela Negle, an Irish girl, girl, lady, living in the United States, Kill All Normies, where she describes how, I remember when I was young, late 60s, 70s, those in power spoke the official language of Dignity, bombastic, patriotic, while we leftist protesters, you know, we made signs like this, use dirty words, we consider this subversive. But did you notice that now this new so called alt right, alternative right, especially in the United States, they use dirty language, sexual obscenities, incredible vulgarity, and so on. And this is a tragedy. The left, is at least the official liberal democratic left is retreating to old, uh, not only moralism but even police brutality. Now the left wants to censor public space and so on and so on. It's a total mess. So that then the new right appears more and more as a partisan of uh, a partisan of. Uh, of uh, 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 um, uh, personal freedoms and the, uh, the sorry the new right is partisan of human freedoms you can talk dirty and so on whatever you want and the left the left is partisan of law and order they want more police interventions uh, and so on and so on another element in this crisis I'm approaching the end don't be afraid is this big motive that we find in uh, Bombarded with by the media, that we live in a post-truth era. But here, I think things are a little bit more, um, uh, a little bit more ambiguous. The idea is this one, with the rise of religious and ethnic fundamentalism, uh, Rational argumentation no longer works, as we see also today with some reactions to the pandemic, the explosion of uh, conspiracy theories, and so on, uh, and so on. Then the idea is that also with the digital media, there is no longer one public space. It's a dispersion. Uh, And uh, also in theory... You, you get, uh, you get uh, 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 sorry, in theory, you get so-called postmodern historicists who say there is no objective truth. We just have different subjective perspectives and so on and so on. Now, my position here is that, of course, this is true. Every approach to society. Is already in some sense interested, engaged. I don't believe in objective truth, but this does not mean that this does not mean that all truths are equal. I'm not a relativist. Let me give you an example which will please the Jews. Look, uh, it n- when Nazis were saying when they were taking power in Germany, that Jewish influence is too strong. And when they gave you some statistics, like more than half of the doctors in Berlin are Jewish, 60% of the lawyers are Jewish, and so on, probably they were telling something true. But nonetheless, this factual truth was in the service of the anti-Semitic lie. What I want to tell you this is true repeat an old joke of mine that I like, when, uh, not even a joke, a clinical observation by Jacques Lacan, my teacher in psychoanalysis, who said, when a husband is pathologically jealous of his wife, that she sleeps together with other men, even if his wife really sleeps with other men, his jealousy is still pathological. Because the problem is not does his wife really sleep with other men or not? The problem is, why does he need jealousy to maintain his psychic stability and order, and so on, uh, and order, and so on, and so on? So uh, <coughs> again, uh, and the same, the same goes for today's Israel. To talk about anti-Semitism today in Israel, you must talk also about what Israel itself is doing, for example, to the Palestinians on the West Bank. I think that our answer to oppression of Palestinians should not be, yes, they are justified, let's tolerate a little bit of anti-Semitism. No. The struggle against anti-Semitism in Europe and so on And the struggle for Palestinian rights are two sides of the same struggle. We should not, we should, to the end, resist this uh, crazy logic that there is a basic truth, but then small entities should be sacrificed to this truth. I don't know if I already mentioned this, but here comes my, I think I skipped that over, here comes my big sympathy with you, Kurds. I remember, you remember when uh, uh, Americans abandoned you to the interplay of Erdogan, Turkey, and Russia, and Syria, and so on. Uh, Many of my friends agreed with Trump. It's good that he did that. And they even reproached you that... uh, You were protected by Americans. And I told them, okay, it was a geopolitical mess. What should you have done? Should you have said, yeah, I know uh, America, the greatest imperialist power, uh, supports us, so we should sacrifice ourselves for the anti imperialist world struggle and so on and so on. No, this is the basic lie that today in the politics embodied in you, not in you, in you as the sign place where this lie appears, as if, you know, a fundamental truth means that everybody has to sacrifice himself, his identity to it. As even the guy who criticized me a lot, Noam Chomsky, if you remember, said, yes, I'm against American intervention, but there, when they protected you as long as did against Turkey and so on, Americans, I'm for them. Them. Don't think in these mechanical terms. Politics are paradoxes, especially today in the new multicentric world. You know, for example, take Myanmar. Some of my friends said that they support the coup d'etat because those who were democratically elected were too close to the West and so on and so on. This logic is horrible and you were, you were its uh, victims. Uh, but the last point I want to make is that uh, you know those who talk about relativization of truth and so on and so on, where I don't agree with them is when they say that uh, we are now in the era of death of truth, post-truth. Wait a minute. As if there was a time when we lived in the era of truth. Take the Cold War. Both sides were lying. Maybe Communist Soviet Union more, but both sides were totally lying. The point is just that each of the opposed sides, Western democracy, Soviet socialism, controlled its public space. Now this public space is exploding. And uh, our task today is is what our task today is precisely not to dwell in this historicist relativism. You Kurds have your own vision. I don't know Turks have their own vision. Uh, others, uh, Afghanistan is their own vision, which should all coexist. No. I claim that's the paradox, the basic lesson of Marxism that you embody, that truth is not neutral in a country where there is oppression. You can formulate a truth about that country only from a position of those who are most radical fighters for freedom in that country. Truth is not an objective category. No. What you Discover with an objective analyst is just how best to exploit people, <laughs> how to manipulate them, and so on and so on. Truth is an truth is an engaged truth is an engaged category. So that's my first lesson. We have to build a new universalism. You, the Kurds, are my model, not because you are interesting small guys who somehow found your, uh, uh, reasserted your identity. No, you interest me because you are a miracle, because not your fault, but because of crazy. Uh, geopolitical games, you are like salami sliced into, you know, uh, Turkish, uh, Turkish part, Greek part, and so on, and so on, and you embody the lie, and nobody is allowed to dismiss you as all oh, that particular problem, let's not think about that. No, the we will live in a freer world where what is happening to you could no longer could no longer happen. That's important. Uh, second thing, as for the uh, as for the truth and so on. What the case that I mentioned? How people accuse you of? But nonetheless, you are supported by Americans. Then you cannot be so good and so on. No, you know what's the problem. The problem is that ideology today is not problematic when it lies. But when it lies with elements of truth, for example, let's take even Trump. He was basically a populist lie, but some things he said were partially true. Like when he said how American big capital cooperates with China, to outsource production to exploit earth uh, to, to to keep the wages lower of american workers and so on and so on you know ideologies the is most dangerous where when it lies with the truth and nobody has to force you to abandon your truth because of some higher ideological interest like let us say that In some crazy future constellation, uh, Russia would take over totally Syria, make, made a pact with Erdogan against United States and Israel, I'm dreaming. And then people would say, that's a big anti-imperialist achievement, so you Kurds, you are off now. (laughs) No, never, never, this should never, never happen. The, the measure of truth in politics is that you have a global vision in which nobody is sacrificed in this sense. But really to conclude one page, I'm not lying. Uh, sorry that I was so long. Really to conclude, uh, so yes, democracy is still of some use, but it will have to be radically invented. You know what is typical thing today? Look, Ukraine or even Belarus and so on. Okay, you have a bad dictator. It's easy to mobilize people to fight against him and then we want democracy. But then when you get democracy, you see that you have the same problems sometimes in an even worse form. For example, remember a great man, Nelson Mandela. They wanted the end of apartheid and democracy. They got it. But now, dissatisfaction of the black majority, there is even, according to some sources, more poverty, certainly more uh, corruption and violence than under apartheid. So, you know, democracy has to, yes, democracy has to be reinvented. The dialectic of political process is not just that you pursue a certain goal. You try to do something, then in the process, you discover that you have to redefine the goal itself. We have to rethink what we mean by democracy today. And here, I will not teach you. We should all learn from you. So, to end with the old joke that I often use in my books, there is the legendary Hollywood producer Sam Goldwyn. He was a relatively progressive, good guy, but he was well known for many of his nonsenses, but which were intelligent nonsenses. So once he got from his studio a report that press is complaining that in the scenarios of his films, dialogues, there are too many old cliches used. So he wrote a memo to people who wrote scenarios for his film, telling them, we urgently need more new cliches. That's what we need today in politics. We don't need big original things. We need cliches. Cliches, by this I mean customs, manners, how to organize in these crazy times new mode of everyday life. That's the big problem for us in developed countries, maybe even more than with you. You know, we have health problem with the pandemic. We have economic problem. But I fear, and it's becoming more and more clear, that the biggest problem will be mental health. Violence is exploding because this everyday Rituals, customs of people are broken. We are in a terrible situation of re- literally building new cliches, new customs. We have to construct new everyday life. And here, I'm not bluffing, we will all learn from you. We, Europe and the United States are ethically a catastrophe. We are lost today. So. Thank you very much. It was an honor for me.